The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. It's easy to see how our workplaces can become boiling cauldrons of anxiety, We bring our own anxiety to work, of course, but work itself makes us anxious for so many reasons. Maybe a job doesn't pay well enough or or doesn't provide benefits. Maybe your boss disrespects you, takes away your autonomy. Or the company demands punishing hours and requires an always-on presence. And so, we may micromanage. We may assert our smarts and try to prove our worthiness by jockeying for power or taking up a lot of space in meetings. Or we may simply drive towards inbox zero, because that gives us a sense of control. All of this may make us unpleasant to work with. But here's the thing. Many workplaces reward anxious behavior. And since anxiety is contagious within systems, when the anxious leader gets rewarded, teams copy their leader's anxious behaviors. And guess what happens then? Everyone becomes anxious. Today's guest studies how work works. He's a work designer. And he's learned systemic tweaks that help environments become less stressful and stop rewarding those anxious behaviors. Aaron Dynan is founder of The Ready, an organizational transformation and coaching practice. He focuses on how to prioritize adaptivity and autonomy over efficiency and control, which you can pretty quickly extrapolate into upsides for your mental health at work. He's also author of the book Brave New Work and co-host of the podcast of the same name, Aaron joined me to talk about how he helps organizations realize that they need to change and how he guides them through it. He offers up new perspectives for people in how they think about and approach work. Here's our conversation. Okay, so here's here's the big question I want to <laughs> ask you yeah. and sort of frame the rest of our discussion around. And it's this, why does work suck so much? It's a question that I have stayed up many nights thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, I think on one hand, at the highest possible level, work is work, right? And, And every species on the planet has to get up in the morning and hustle to have their next meal and to find a place to live and to find a mate and to continue their species. So in some ways, it's kind of our lot in life that we're going to have to work hard to survive and thrive. And that's and that's just sort of the deal. That's the game that we're all playing. But the way I talk about it when I talk about work really being miserable, it has nothing to do with the, the hard work aspect of being alive. It has to do with making it harder. And the, way, the ways that we make it harder are with the apparatus that we've built around how we work and how we think about work and how we think about power at work and all those things. So the, the simple kind of story that I often tell is that our modern way of working with hierarchy, with budgets, with bosses, with Gantt charts, with, you know, annual planning and budgeting, that all came about around the time that the factory was really 
becoming critical in in culture and in and in business. And the factory floor had a set of problems to solve, like how do you make sure that every size nine shoe fits like a size nine shoe, or how do you make sure that every box of cornflakes is fresh and crunchy? And when when was this Orientus in history? Roughly between eighteen eighty and nineteen twenty. Mm. You know, the the problem started because the nature of the problems they were trying to solve at that time were what I would call complicated problems, meaning they have cause and effect. They have a lot of parts, but they can be figured out and they can be solved. And so people like Frederick Taylor and other business thinkers of the time kind of decided that there was a one right way to do everything. And our job was essentially to get people to comply with that one best practice. So like whether it's shoveling a lump of coal or whether it's running a machine or cutting a piece of fabric or putting an eyelid in a shoe, there's a one best way and we need to kind of get the automatons to play along in order to be maximally efficient. And so the the good news is that worked really well. A lot of moving society out of poverty came from the innovation of kind of the Henry Ford way of doing business. But the problem is that as the next century unfolded, all the work that really started to matter and that was interesting and that was valuable was not complicated work. It was complex work. And so it was about creativity and human judgment and solving problems we've never solved before that are social and interconnected and intersectional. And suddenly we're bringing this other toolkit, this like cornflakes toolkit (laughs) to a problem about social inequality or a problem about how do we build AI or a problem about what would make good software. (laughs) And, And it's not the right tool for the job. And so we have this mismatch and what's worse, we kind of double down on it with with a real almost de facto commitment to the idea that like everybody needs a boss, every business needs a strategy and a budget and a plan. And the way that we win is by just working harder at the mill. And so on balance, because of all the rules and red tape and bureaucracy and and kind of mismanagement or just low quality management, one in two people at work is thinking about quitting on any given day in America. And that is, to me, that's a really kind of miserable statistic. And you actually point out that this is not a pandemic thing, that these these data have actually been pretty consistent for years. For 30 years, yeah. I mean, yeah. they move like 1% <laughs> every year in one direction or another, but there's no continuing change here. It's basically just that work is a low engagement place around the world. I really want to focus also on the themes of autonomy and agency versus <laughs> You you actually said most people work in a dictatorship, and I thought, oh my god, that's a pretty. <laughs> what does he mean by that? <laughs> but yeah. it seems like we're kind of in a war for our souls, knowledge workers, where we spend all this time learning and becoming good at what we do, and we want to have autonomy. We we want to be recognized. We want to be able to manage our time, and then we go into the system that is literally saying, no, you're basically children. Yeah. And it's it's kind of mind boggling, right? I mean, I love giving my talks and, and my workshops in, in countries that are democracies, because I get to point out that most people in a democracy would fight, many would die to preserve the right to vote for who's in charge and to change out who's in power over time and to change the rules of their legislation with an elected body of representatives and to live under the rule of law that they co-create together. Yeah. And they are like, yeah, I'm willing to get down in the mud and do that. Or my ancestors certainly were. And now I'm going to go to work and do the exact opposite. <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? Why? Just because it's normal and because every bit of media and every bit of information we've been fed since we were given a bathroom pass in first grade 
tells us that that's how the world should be. The main difference in the social contract of a traditional business versus the kind that I like to work in and create and, and counsel is when you join the system, in both cases, you accept the rules as they are. But in one system, you don't have any voice in those things until you take power. Mm-hmm. And in another system, everyone has a voice. And I think that's the difference is like there are many schools in the Netherlands, in Europe, et cetera, where the students create the curriculum. The students create the rules and the agreements. The students create the agenda. And their academic outcomes are extraordinarily good. Yeah. So it's not as if it's impossible to do, but it is a real commitment from the power holders to say, we're going to play a different kind of game here and with a different set of rules. What's the relationship between our workplace mental health, how we feel mentally at work with the current system and how we all work? Yeah. I mean, that's a fantastic question. And the slightly unsatisfying answer is that it's a really brutal two-way feedback loop. Oh, God. So we bring our mental health to business, to work, whatever it might be, from our own stories, our own background, our identity, you know, our family systems and dynamics. And we show up at work with all that baggage, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. positive or negative. And, and it really is a defining factor of how we can be in the system. Mm-hmm. So I have an extraordinary number of people, including myself, who have shown up to some of these self-managing, self-governing systems that I work in and around and have a really rough six months where it's like, wait a second, I can't blame the system anymore. I can't blame a boss anymore. Now I'm fighting with myself. And I'm really facing the fact that like I have work to do. I have work to do on my own mental health, on my own identity and ego, et cetera. And so we've all had that experience, that struggle, and that's and that's a real thing. But by the same token, I've also seen people coming in from other systems, from decades in some cases of experience in other systems that have really essentially abused them to the point where they have mental health struggles from work. So it's not just that they're bringing them to work, but actually work is is creating anxiety, is creating fear, is creating kind of a, a scarcity mindset that is really problematic. And so unfortunately, that that loop is feeding in both directions. And if we don't have something to interrupt it, or we don't all become very lucky and privileged that we show up with great mental health, um, then we have, we have a problem. And there's a lot of work to be done there that is woefully underserved, I think, in most in most businesses and organizations. I think also that uh, the systems that we have in place at many workplaces reward anxiety. This is actually (laughs) a lot of what I talk about in my book. So so take, for example, the control-obsessed manager, right? They more often than not get rewarded. The anxious leader who is emailing all night and day, our systems reward this behavior that makes other people experience mental ill health and is a symptom of people's anxiety. How, how do you attempt to address that in your work? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's super interesting. And it's funny, you reminded me as you were talking about a tweet from a kind of a internet buddy of mine named Andrew Wilkinson. And he tweeted just this year, or just last year, actually, it was, um, most successful people are just a walking anxiety disorder harnessed for productivity. I saw that, Which I thought was an extraordinarily good way of expressing what you just said. So yeah, like that is definitely true. And I think that's the reality is we've learned how to... One thing that capitalism is really good at is creating the problem and the solution or creating the problem and then (laughs) leveraging it. 
So it will sell you hamburgers and Skittles, and then it will sell you a diet plan and healthcare. Right. Um, right. And I think the same thing is true here. Like it will incite anxiety in you, and then sell you the cure as career progression and and hard work and you know those sorts of things. And so and leadership. I, yeah, exactly. So I I think you're right. I'm I find that the best way to interrupt that is is actually just through practice and through behavior and through norms. So like. We tend not to tackle individual issues head on in our work, not to say that it's not important. Like I said, a lot of us needed to do our own work through therapy and coaching and reflection, et cetera. But like most of the work we do in the world is actually about working on the system and the processes of the system as a way of teaching through movement. Mm. So instead of saying like, don't be biased or don't, don't eat up all the airtime in the meeting to the powerful white man. We'll just say, we're going to run this decision in rounds where we hear from everyone questions, reactions, suggestions, decisions. You know, we're going to kind of use the pattern of the meeting to interrupt bias or to interrupt, you know, loudmouth behavior, et cetera. And that tends to create a struggle at first to conform to the pattern and then a reflection inside the person of like, wait, this is different and it's working for others and for me. And so what does that mean? And that tends to trigger some kind of a journey on what that looks like. And I think it's no different with anxiety. I mean, we try to talk as candidly as we can about our mental health at the ready and at murmur and take time for that and take moments for that, but also notice what about our system might be provoking that. Mm -hmm. And so I actually had a conversation Mm -hmm. literally yesterday with one of my colleagues, Sarah Devereaux, who was like, there are things we say about the first few months of this company and how great it was that might create anxiety in someone that just joined when we're like, Oh, the good old days, you know? And I was like, Oh, I never would have thought of that. You know, it was just reminiscence for me, but I can see how now that might create a tension. And so I think just having little noticings like that is really helpful and is kind of a team sport at some level. I have to tell you, in all honesty, I was watching a video and you were going through how you run the company differently. And I actually want to get to that later. But you have a system where people sort of bid to take on projects, even though they work for you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that would make me so anxious. Right. I would be in a constant state of anxiety because basically it's like, well, it is my life being an entrepreneur. Like, do I have another client coming in? Do I have enough money to pay the bills? It's a loop. So I just wanted to give you that feedback. I probably would not be good working for you. Honestly, I think it's one of the things we've learned about that system is that it has some it has some trade-offs. One of the things we joke about a lot is that everything in org design is trade-offs. So it's just it's there's no right or wrong really. It's just like what are you trading for that? And and so that system was really optimizing for individual autonomy and agency and you know self-organization around the projects and people end up ideally working more on what they want to work on and being more entrepreneurial. But the cost is there is some anxiety and there is some like kind of necessary mercenary behavior. So I I do think one of the things that's fun about the ready and and murmur is that nothing is static. So like if we do this interview in a year, I guarantee that's not how that system will work. (laughs) Something will have shifted based on what you just noticed. Interesting. I want to hear how rejiggering a meeting can disrupt biased poor systems. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, we say that the meeting is the microcosm. Mm, so the so true. You know, if you show me a meeting in your organization, I'll tell you about your entire culture <laughs> because it's all there. 
Like we're bringing people together to try to collaborate, to try to process information, to try to make decisions and all the social dynamics and all the like lack of structure or too much structure will, will be on display. So, (laughs) so that's the first thing is that, you know, the meeting you have is the culture you have. It's sort of like you get, you get exactly what you designed for. So by changing something about that, we in theory might be changing something about the culture, sort of sticking our hand in the waterfall. And what we have found is that small changes have very cool priming effects. So one of the practices that we have on our podcast, on, on the Brave New Work podcast, and also in both businesses, is the check-in round. Mm. And the check-in round is simply starting each meeting, or every major meeting at least, with a question. It could be something as simple as, what has your attention right now? It could be as exciting as, like, what are you, what surprised you this week? Or what are you looking forward to this weekend? It could be cake or pie. But whatever Mm -hmm. it is, it's a chance for each person in turn to take 30 seconds and just check in and use their voice. And when you first introduce this to teams, they're like, that seems dumb. A, it's a waste of time. And B, (laughs) what difference does it make? How is it going to change the way we work? We want to be agile and responsive and grow and do all these, you know, achieve all these things. And what we explain is like, well, we know that one of the best predictors of team success is having more equal talk time in the sense that we kind of have a little bit more equality of voice in the system in terms of how we communicate and what we notice and what we pursue. And that's hard for teams to achieve when there are a few people that are really loud and maybe less anxious or more vocal, more extroverted, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the case may be. Or loud because they're anxious. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you're right. It could be the inverse. (laughs) So for whatever reason, there definitely are louder and quieter voices. And a lot of those patterns get more accentuated over time. And so the check-in round is this really weird interruption where it's like, no, we're all actually just going to speak for about the same amount of time at the very beginning of the meeting. And what's really fun about that is if you then pay attention to what happens for the rest of the meeting, just doing that one thing will change how much time people spend talking in the meeting. Hmm. And it will change how they give a little deference to each other. And it'll change how certain ideas bubble up, not by 100%. But by 5% or 10% or 20% the first time and then more in the future. And it basically primes the pump for more shared voice. And and so little adjustments like that change the meeting. And then as the meeting changes and voices change, needs are stated, ideas are stated and heard when they weren't heard before. And suddenly the organization starts to turn. So it's, yeah, it's like little pebbles in the pond. But, but there are, you know, 10 different meeting moves that we have like that that change one aspect or one pattern of the meeting. Another one that we use is no pre-planned agendas. So we don't go into the meeting with a pre-planned agenda that was decided by the leader based on a bunch of people begging for time, which is a weird power dynamic. Instead, we just show up at the meeting right at the moment. So anything that got dealt with already is not on the list still. And in the moment, what is alive, what is needed, and we make a list And then we process that list with what do you need for each person on that issue one at a time with an elected facilitator who is not the leader, who is basically processing where we move up and down that list. So we take it in the order that they think best suits the needs of the team. And again, small move, small change, but like A, we save two hours bidding for the agenda all week. And B, half the agenda gets taken care of anyway, socially, because there's no reason to wait. And then the last bit is that we actually get the right things surfaced and processed and people's needs met instead of listening to a blowhard talk for 45 minutes and then the meeting is over. <laughs> I don't think that's a small change. I think that's a pretty radical change. <laughs> it's a big actually. impact, yeah, but a small, a small reco with a big impact. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I have a question about impression management, too, oh, which fun. is a term that I hate. It's the worst term, but, you know, I talk to a lot of anxious achievers and impression management is big, right? You want to be seen as smart. You want to say the right thing. Mm -hmm. You want to wear the right thing. You want to be brilliant at the brainstorm, right? You want to impress your boss, but not be a kiss up. Like, how does your way of approaching work change what impression management is? That's a great question that I don't think I've ever heard before, which is is something right Right out of of the gate. The first thing I would say, I, I am a self-assessed Enneagram type three. So I'm very interested in how I'm presented <laughs> and, and being perceived in a, in a positive light and being admired. Those are my, my loops that I get stuck in and, and get worried about. And I think what is interesting about these systems is that they are very reputational. Mm-hmm. If you take positional power away, or you minimize it at least, What's left is a lot of reputational power. Like who do people trust and who do they go to and who do they confide in and who do they ask for advice and who gets picked when it's time to play kickball? Those are realities that you can't really strip away from a system. And so there is a lot of reputation obsession and I think a lot of anxiety about reputation in the system. Like I would say this, but if I say it to this person who has a lot of reputational influence and I piss them off, then that might kind of screw up my rep with the rest of the organization. Yep. So it's a real trade-off and it's a real negative side of these kinds of systems. Whereas in maybe a traditional hierarchy, all I have to worry about is kissing up to my boss. <laughs> if my boss likes me, I'm made in the shade. <laughs> and in our system, it's like, oh yeah, your boss is everyone else. <laughs> so so that is uh, that can be really, really challenging. On the other hand, I think after a while, as you kind of put down some of those desires just through kind of sheer repetition, you get more interested in authenticity and you get really connected to the idea that if you don't speak up, if you don't, if you don't represent yourself and your interests and your noticings authentically, then the place kind of goes downhill and it's pretty much your fault. Mm. So if everyone in the game plays a fake game in order to try to curry favor with everyone else, we become average and we become unpleasant over time. And as you start to see that slippage happening, it's kind of, it's up to each of us and to all of us together to kind of show up and be like, wait a second, I'm going to have to just take some interpersonal risks 
in order to try to protect the purpose and the place and the community and the kind of existence that we want to have here together. Not everybody is successful at that. That doesn't always happen. There have been periods in all of my business experiences where like that really fell off the bus. But that is the goal and that is the desired outcome is that we kind of we put the overall culture and its quality ahead of our own self-interest as much as we can. And some people do that better than others. And you may feel anxiety along the way, but that's okay because anxiety is a part of life. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's a different kind of anxiety when you release a little bit to like what may come may come. You know, it's the anxiety of just of just tension and the tension between today and tomorrow and what could be and trying to trying to stop controlling everything. I think trying to make sure like if I can't stay here forever and be successful, then it's not going to work. And and moving more to an attitude of like, I'm going to play it like I see it. And if it means that I don't fit here, then I'll find another place to fit or I'll start another thing. And obviously there's a lot of experience, mastery and privilege in a statement like that. But I think it's possible for a lot of people over time to achieve that mindset. Let's talk about control. Yeah, let's. You say, forget it. There's no control. But basically, a lot of what we do at work is running around trying to control things. Totally. The world around us is trending a certain way. And a lot of being in an organization is about orienting around a purpose. And most purposes are about making something different. We want to make the world a better place, a different place. We want to have a career experience that's different. Whatever it might be, everyone has a reason for starting something or joining something. But it's often in service of a change or a shift. So by definition, we're kind of looking for control that way. And to your point, we also kind of come into the world hoping for maximum control for our own safety and well-being. I want to be able to have enough to eat and a place to sleep and, you know, be able to influence the people around me and get what I want, right? And I think it doesn't take a baby long to start crying for milk and realize like, whoa, I have some control if I, if I make a lot of noise. So, so I think that's very natural and very intuitive. What's frustrating for me about control at work is that we have a mindset about control that it is direct control. Mm. So I use the metaphor or analogy of the roundabout versus the stoplight. The person who controls the stoplight really feels that they have the kind of managerial control that we idolize in culture. I turn it red, everybody stops. I turn it green, everybody goes, I'm in charge. And everyone else is complying. But with what I like to point out is that if your goal is to control people, just get them to do what you want, then yes, that person has more control. But if your goal is to get a certain outcome in the world, like I want people to move through this intersection without having accidents with the maximum amount of throughput per hour, then the person that designed the roundabout has way more control because it's a higher performance intersection by the math, Hmm. by the statistics, and they don't even have to be there. (laughs) They can sleep in. (laughs) And so when I talk to leaders, I often am talking to them about you're making a trade. It's not I don't want you to give up control. I want you to trade one form of control for another, and you're going to give away the direct control in favor of the kind of control that happens when you set the table, when you set the chessboard, when you figure out, you know, what's on the menu. And that system design is actually the kind of control that you want to have because influencing the system influences all the outcomes in a way that is much more empowering to the people in the system, especially if you create that system with them through consent. But even if you don't, it leaves a lot more room for them to enjoy creativity and judgment and all those sorts of things. So that's, yeah, that's the, the control story is like trade one form for another that you didn't even know existed and be, be a designer. Right, because we all have to use our judgment in a roundabout in a way that 
we are not required to at a light. Totally. It runs on social coordination entirely. There's no arbiter of what happens except people just using their best guess, which is kind of chaotic at times and fun to watch, but fundamentally higher performance. I would imagine there's a tremendous amount of leadership anxiety that happens when you tell someone to change everything they've spent probably decades learning how to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's... How do you help people through that? It's upsetting. It depends on their on the stage of their career and their development. So the very early career person hasn't acquired much power at work yet. And so they're very interested in these ideas. The late career person is really sick of all the BS. And they have kind of seen, the, they've been to the puppet show, they've seen the strings, and they've realized that the brass ring is not all it's cracked up to be. They're actually pretty interested in these ideas. They already have the big house. The people in the middle are real tough because they have been climbing the ladder long enough to really feel like they have some loss aversion about losing what they've gained, but they haven't reached the top. And so there's a sense of like, if I pivot now, what am I really giving up and how am I losing the game that I've been fighting to win? And so it is, uh, it is a real struggle. And, you know, we appeal to people only through storytelling and, and experiences, really. We're very invitation-driven, so our job is not to change anyone's mind. And in fact, we just tell stories of, of different ways of working, and we offer experiences and, and simulations and immersions to, to experience some of these different ideas. And then it's sort of like, who wants to play more like this? And if it's 2% of the hands in the room or 5% or 10%, that's fine with us. So, so a lot of it is not about changing minds, but just about finding out who's, who's willing and who's ready. And then from there, what you tend to see is that the skeptics notice what works. Because at the end of the day, if the other team that you interface with is suddenly doubling their productivity, having their hours, and feels a lot happier, more smiles on their faces, at some point you're like, what are they ordering at the restaurant? Like, I want to taste what that woman is having over there. And so you, you start to get that, those sort of curiosity gains of, you know, maybe we should try a little bit of what they're doing. And that, that tends to spread things. But I, yeah, I, I spent a lot of my career trying to change people's minds directly and then got some good advice actually from Seth Godin early on where he was like, uh, life's too short to change people's minds. Just go find the people that already want to that already want to change in the direction that you want things to change. And that was a big kind of moment for me to shift. So it does provoke a lot of anxiety, especially in people that didn't ask for it. But when, when the next word out of my mouth is, I'm not going to make you do this. This is an invitation. And my question to you is not, will you do my thing? But what is in the way of you doing the best work of your life or your team doing the best work of its life? That's the question I'm asking you. It feels very disarming, I think, and very unthreatening because it's like, oh, well, I ha- everyone has an answer to that question. What's in my way? Well, now that you ask this, and then I say, great, why don't we start with that? Like, let's do an experiment. Let's try, let's try a new working practice to attack that thing that you're frustrated about. And suddenly it's not my change on them. It's their change on the system. Their change. And I'm just facilitating it. So most times we can, we can find our way there. But it's, it's not without its moments. I mean, there's real dark nights of the soul in this work if you play it out for a couple of years. Can you tell us a story? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what tends to happen is that individuals will have one of two things occur. Either they will buy into this stuff and then get into the work and start changing the way they meet and the way they decide and inviting the team to really step up and participate and changing their roles. And then at one point, there's a realization that like their identity as a leader and their ego 
is threatened. Like, who am I if I'm not the one approving things? I don't actually do anything anymore. I'm just an approver. So when I stop approving things, who am I and what do I do? And it's a real return to craft for a lot of people where they um, they spend a little while freaking out and then eventually are like, what did I actually enjoy about my job as a marketer before I became CMO? And the reality totally. is there was something, right? There was some craft that they had that they enjoyed doing. And it's like, now you have time to do that again. You know, we did we did a bunch of work with, with a, a food and beverage organization and the CMO ended up saving like 15 or 20 hours a week from meetings they no longer had to go to or participate in or had been eliminated altogether. And it was like, what are you going to do with those 15 hours? You know, that's a crazy amount of time to get back, at, you know, that late in your career. Wow. I, I, I love the point of rediscovering your craft. I think for so many of us, certainly in mid-career, we're at that point where we feel so far from the work. And um, yeah. I ran a small business for 11 years. And for the last few years, I was pretty far away from the work. And I sold it. And so I sort of spent some time there. And I've been on my own since May. Yeah. And I've been doing some consulting. And I am actually writing marketing emails again. Mm -hmm. I am writing copy. I am doing things that I, you know, used to be like, whoa, I'm not doing this anymore. And the truth is I'm back in my craft. Yeah. And I have a renewed energy and I have a renewed respect for all the things I used to ask my team to do that actually take a lot longer than I thought it did. Mm, that's awesome. <laughs> I wish I had known this years ago. I think so many people have forgotten that when you think about a career, there's more than one way to be successful and more than one way to make more money and have more respect. And I love to joke, like, how many direct reports did Michelangelo have? <laughs> you know, was his work important? Was he worth it? It's not always about the span of control. It's often about the quality of the craft. And if you are exceptional at something, you can receive respect for that and you can monetize that and you can find ways to to enjoy that. And, and frankly, like a lot of organizations aren't set up to support that. There are countless stories of great engineers at Google who got promoted into management and mm -hmm. suddenly hated their lives because mm -hmm. that was it. Like you want to make more money, you want to have more power, you want to have more success. This is what you have to do next. And I think everyone's starting to come around to that. You'll see more kind of forked career maps now than ever before where people realize that some people may just want to stay in the craft. And a lot of the cases that we look at, there isn't even an option. Like if you look at the healthcare organization, Burt's Org, it's 15,000 nurses in community cells of 10 to 15 people. The head office is 50 people total. 35 of them are coaches with no authority that just move around the system. And there are 15 people pushing the finances and the technology. There is no hierarchy to climb. You just can become a better nurse. That's kind of it. And you can lead a cell and that's it. Um, and so I think a lot of systems will move in that direction if they, if they get the memo here, which is you actually just want small tribal cells or communities inside the system that can replicate to achieve the scale of the organization, but don't leave a lot of room for, for fiefdoms. Fabi is another example. It's a brass auto parts manufacturer that makes a lot of stuff for companies like Volvo, et cetera. And they just organize into micro factories, about 30 to 50 people around a particular client, a particular brand. And they run their, you know, their hours in the factory in service of that brand. And they have one of every role like Noah's Ark. And that's it. That's the whole business. So I think we'll see more of that behavior in the future, or I hope we will, because it, it eliminates the whole need for that 
that game? You know, I, I speak with a lot of really senior executives, and my overall sense, especially during the pandemic, is that they're just so sick of sitting on Zooms. Like, the lifeblood has been sucked dry from being on Zoom with different time zones all day long. <laughs> Boo. Like, that's not a life that the smartest, most ambitious, most skilled people aspire to. Heck no. Heck no. And it's not remote work either. And I think that's what people misunderstand is everybody thinks that 4 billion people moved to remote work, air quotes, during the pandemic. And that's not true. They took the bad work they already had and they transferred it to a bunch of crappy Zoom meetings. Actual remote work done by teams that do it well is very asynchronous and very freeing and very fluid and very open and very documentation driven. And it's a whole different animal. But it's a completely different skill set that very few organizations took the time to learn. And instead, it was like, let's just surveil everyone in a constant meeting. <laughs> right. And let's just like take meetings, yeah. put them on Zoom, and keep the same playbook. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we've had to deal with some of that, too. I mean, certainly to do our work, we do a lot of our work in meetings and in moments where we're with other people. So we, we do spend a lot of time on Zoom, but not for us, for, for our clientele. You know, our, our number of meetings per week internally are probably in the, in the single digit hours total. But there are many people here who spend 40 hours a week on Zoom because they're popping into so many different places. Yeah. Well, that's, look, that's the life of a consultant. It is. It is. I've lived that for decades. <laughs> it's, the, it's the service of it all. I want to round out our conversation by asking for your expert advice as someone who is working to redesign work, which so badly needs redesign. There is an emerging field of workplace mental health, right? And, and I truly believe that companies, they want to offer excellent mental health benefits. They want people to feel good. They do not want people to have anxiety disorders and be depressed. And yet, they don't know how to do it, and they kind of don't know how to get out of their own way. If you were inventing the field of workplace mental health what would you tell companies to do? Well, I think that it comes back to that two-way feedback loop that we talked about before, which is to say we can offer the benefit of the resources and the space to do your own work and to do whatever you need to do to kind of shore up or, or deal with the mental health that you came in the door with. And so part of that is about a benefits approach. Part of that is about space and understanding. Part of that is about destigmatizing what it means to talk about mental health at work. I think those things are all critical and, and definitely matter a ton. And then I think the kind of less understood, less spoken about part is what are we doing to exacerbate or create mental health issues on top of that stuff? And that's more about governance and more about communicating and sense making and retrospecting on how we're showing up and what effect it's having on each other and even even building skills. I mean, I think, you know, separate in a way of, of doing the work of processing your own experiences, your own traumas, your own neurodivergence. There's also just skill building because it, hilariously, you go to school and you learn how to figure out how to calculate a right angle and how to do the Pythagorean theorem. But nobody teaches conflict resolution. <laughs> which is wild, right? Because you're going to be in 10,000 conflicts for the rest of your life, but you will never again need to know the hypotenuse unless you work in two professions that are not what you're going to work in. As the mother of two middle schoolers, trust me, I could use some conflict resolution. <laughs> right? 
so that's critical. And so one one example of something that we're doing to try to drive a little bit of, of movement on this is is we have an agreement about commitments and conflict at Murmur. And it talks about building some skills in terms of how we communicate consciously and how we communicate nonviolently inside the organization. And so there's a small curriculum around that stuff, as well as a monthly meeting to discuss what we're noticing and learning and resources to potentially go deeper on these practices if you're interested. So I think it's like you kind of have to build skills that aren't there from the get go and I have found as a kind of serial founder that you don't want to wait to do that. If you wait till you're a thousand people and then you're like, now we'll build conflict skills, you've got a huge mountain to climb. But if you start building them when you're five people and then you're modeling that and you're demonstrating that and you're intervening and interrupting negative patterns from the get go with the most tenured people, really cool things are possible. And so I think that's something like that is a total learning edge for me. Like when I came into the world of, of entrepreneurship, I was a mess when it came to conflict, like very conflict avoidant, very much wanting to be liked and admired at the expense of being, you know, telling the truth, really, really like wanted to immediately resolve any conflict between two other people like, oh, how can I how can I stroke everybody's hair until everyone calms down again? <laughs> and, and so I've had to spend 20 years basically building skills that I didn't have to try to even be average at it. Wow. And now I've, I've become committed to kind of doing that for for everyone. Thank you for admitting your averageness. Ooh, so average. I guess I'll leave it with don't be an asshole and don't reward assholes. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. This was great. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MoraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.